Quick question for you. Are you a Federal Access member yet? If you're a government contractor, you need a Federal Access account. You can get started today with a free membership. Just visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Free members get access to about 20 documents and templates as well as our video training playbooks. More importantly, this gets you in the RSM Federal ecosystem and makes you part of our community. So go grab your free account today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Mike Lejeune here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. And I've got an old guest here with me today, Mr. Kevin Jans. Kevin, I'd love for you to uh, tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm Kevin Jans. I am a former contracting officer. And what we do is we specialize in bringing more context to how government contracts work by using our experience as former contracting officers. Also have a podcast, which you've been on, uh, called the Contracting Officer Podcast. And essentially, we exist to help people when they think, wow, I wish I had a former contracting officer in the room for blank. That's the puzzle we solve for folks. Love the podcast. Uh, like I said, I've been on yours. You've been on ours a few times now. We're probably the the two oldest podcasts in GovCon running around here. I know we've been around, I think this is going into our sixth year. I, I think you probably have a year or two on us, maybe three. Yeah. I'm not sure. You've been around yeah, for a while. Yeah, we started in uh, in 2014. I, I remember the moment when I found yours. I was on a run down in uh, Florida and I thought, hey, somebody else is crazy enough to give this a shot. Yeah. <laughs> I actually reached out to you on LinkedIn. Yeah. So welcome to the crazy world of podcasting. Yeah. So we, we've been surviving a, a lot of it. And so, you know, one of the things for us was COVID. We ramped up, you know, the volume of the podcast and everything. And I highly encourage anybody who's listening, go check out Kevin's podcast. It, it's a great podcast, the the contracting officer podcast. So the informal yet formal plug for the podcast there, it's a, a really good source of information. I think that's how a lot of people find us and find out about us. And you get to hear about really great topics like we're going to talk about today, where uh, it was a topic that I hadn't really thought about a whole lot. And Kevin, had you'd sent over uh, an email saying, hey, I want to talk about these breakpoints in the process to relationship ratio here and kind of how there's these breakpoints in contracting at different levels. So why don't you kind of give us the intro into what these breakpoints are and, and kind of what this is? The easiest way to think about something complex like government contracting is to break it into chunks that we can wrap our heads around. And so one of the things that we do is, is try and make the complex simple. And so this is an attempt at that, is taking all of the different sizes and varieties that of contracts that are out there and, and where are some breakpoints for them? And so there are breakpoints that are related to how government contracts work. And then specifically, we'll talk about how the relationship to process ratio changes. And so I'll, I'll, I'll stop for a second to talk through process to relationship ratio is just what it sounds like, is that some sales are made completely by the relationship. Like you buy your, your car, probably from the same dealer that you always bought it from. You could buy that car anywhere, but you, you're buying it because of the relationship you have with the seller, potentially. There's other things that you buy based on relationship. Then there are things that are based purely on process. Like when you buy something on Amazon, <laughs> it's like you right. have a relationship with Amazon, you're just buying it, right? And there's a wide variety between those ratios. And the idea is if you don't know what the ratio is in the sale you're trying to execute, you run into a brick wall. And this is really true in government contracting because there are processes that can't be overridden. They're not hundreds of them. They're, they're probably a handful, but if you don't know where and when they apply, they feel like a brick wall. Because all of a sudden your, your relationship was working along, you're ready to close the sale, and then mm, we can't do that because of the process. And then other times the process is driving more of the, the overall award 
and you get to, okay, you have to have this relationship to be enabled to, to actually close the deal. So they both mm. matter. The issue is what's the ratio. And so we broke them into these groups to be able to, to help people wrap their heads around. So I'm, I'm looking at a table that has a lot of data on it. So for the listener, it's going to be a little bit more, more uh, difficult to track. So I'm going to break this into, into pieces. So the four pieces, the break points, we'll look at them that way and how government contracts are, are awarded. And again, this is from a contracting officer viewpoint of how I would award contracts. We aptly named them small, medium, large, and the major contracts. So a small contract is one that's going to be a couple dollars up to 250,000. To a lot of contractors, that's a big number. Well, that's also the simplified acquisition threshold, but that is a that can be a big number, but that is a small contract in the overall scheme of government contracting. The next group is 250,000 up to 15 million dollars. This is the contract value, right? Now again, 15 million is a big number. That could be the entire revenue for a small business can still have that amount of revenue, but it is a pretty big number. 15 million is a number where new clauses kick in, new approval thresholds for the contracting officers tend to kick in. This is a heuristic, by the way. This isn't like, don't don't say that that, that it applies in this scenario everywhere. These are concepts to help people grasp the, the size of these contracts. But 15 million is kind of like that window where it starts to go from being a medium-sized contract to a large one. And so a large contract is 15 million to 100 million. And again, 100 million is one of those thresholds where a lot more reviews are needed, uh, certain things you can't do. Like for example, you, you have to get special approval to award a single award or a single award IDIQ contract over $100 million, you got to get special permission. So like new things kick in at $100 million. It's a That's a big contract for most companies. You get over $100 million and now you're into you know, lobbying contracts. You're only a few companies are potentially going to be able to bid on something that's that big. So those are the major ones. So the bulk of what we'll talk about today is we're going to focus on the small, medium, and large. You and I could do a whole other podcast on the major contracts and how they're different. That's t- too much for today. But the small, medium, and large is where we're going to focus. And so that's the small, again, is up to 250,000. A medium is 250,000 to 15 million and a large is 15 million to 100 million. Th- those are going to cover the vast majority of contracts that, that people come across. I'll stop there. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. That, <laughs> I feel like that, I talked for five that, minutes straight. Not only does it make perfect sense, I, I think one of the things that uh, I like about this is when most people get into contracting, they really understand or they are taught one system for how to do everything. It's almost like when you're going through and educating yourself, whether it's books and PTACs and things you find on the web, most people wind up with what I call like this one hammer. And that one hammer is the only tool in their tool belt and it's used for everything. But as you start to grow as a government contractor, you realize you need more than a hammer, right? You need all (laughs) these other different things. And looking at this, it's it's a similar concept in, in my brain, at least, where when you start off, you think, hey, it's all about the relationship and it's the only thing that matters. And then I could see as a contractor starting to bang your head against the wall to say, why does that not matter as much at this new level that I'm at? You know, that medium level where yes, relationship is still important, but there's this, you know, this Amazon buying process going on in the background here. And then I could see more confusion happening to people where they say, well, wait a minute, now I'm large. Why is relationship now more important again than it was in that medium level? I can see how the person who only has a hammer in their tool bag would really struggle to grow through these different levels that you've outlined here. And so to be able to break that down for them so they can understand, hey, there's there's different priorities at each level. Maybe that's where we, we talk now is the relationship to process ratio that actually happens at those three primary levels. Like you said, we could do a whole podcast on the politic one at the large level, but on these three levels here, let's talk about what that ratio looks like. 
So at the small level, the, the up to 250,000, relationship is going to drive a larger portion. Again, it's not going to be 100%, very rarely. In fact, I would say never is it 100%, but there's always some, there are, there's always an example somewhere, right? But the idea is you build a relationship with a buying office, with a customer, with somebody who has a government purchase card, with somebody who knows that you're a small business through the small business, through the PTAC or through the small business office, or you're an 8A and they know that they can award to you. The fact that they're awarding to you directly as an 8A, there's a process to that. You notice there's a little bit there, but a lot of that is going to be based on the relationship is they got to know, hey, this is a small project. This is a plumbing project we have. This is a, an, an event we want some, a small company to manage. They can give you a $50,000, $100,000 contract with limited competition or potentially with no competition at all. And I get that there are nuances to that. For eight days, you can award up to $4 million. Again, this is a heuristic. Rabbit trails are everywhere. But the basic concept for the average small business who's targeting a, a smaller contract, it's going to be more relationship. There's still that process. You need, you need to be registered in SAM. They still have to know who you are. They have to know you can actually do the work. All that stuff is there. There's some clauses that apply. But if they don't know who you are, they're not going to email you and say, hey, would you bid on this? And if it doesn't make it to, to the system for award management to be a formal RFP, you're not going to know about it. Therefore, the relationship matters to be able to get you some of these, I would say most of these type contracts. And so that concept of, it feels a lot like a business to business sale, or it can, where the relationship matters. The same the same way that, that you and I, when we have uh, contracts with small companies, a lot, it's mostly relationship. I mean, yes, there's still a contract. It may only be four pages, whereas the government one is 40 pages, but it's the same idea idea is you have this relationship. Understanding how those contracts are competed, it's going to be streamlined. It's going to be, we looked at three companies, this is the best one. Or we said, hey, this is something we can direct source because this is a women-owned small business in this NAICS code. There is that process, but it's backed up by relationship. When you're in those smaller contracts, relationship is going to rule the day. That makes perfect sense. And again, I think that's the hammer that everybody has in their tool bag. Yes. That's well the said. one. That is the one where, hey, we're going to do everything based on relationship. Look at the cap. The cap on that is probably $250,000 contracts for the most part. It doesn't mean, like you said earlier, that relationship isn't important at the next level, but it changes. The ratio changes a lot in the next level. And I do think that is why a lot of people get in, they win those first couple of contracts and then they stall out because they're like, I don't understand the process that's involved at this next level to go to a $250,000 or maybe a, a million dollar contract contract or a $5 million contract up to that $15 million threshold that you're talking about here. So what are some of the processes that you see are really critical in that medium stage? Because I, I think if I were was an average listener, I'd probably say that's where most of the people listening today are in that medium stage trying to grow. And maybe they've hit a few of those. And now they're saying, well, how do I make that repeatable? It's probably in the process side of it. Yeah. Uh, part of it is going to be lots of different options. <laughs> I'll start with targeting. Is understanding which customer do you sell to that is going to expect you to move to that medium. A lot of agencies, you may get five, $10 million a year in contracts at the small level. And so understanding who are you talking to? Do they use these kind of contracts? And so the, the next big question there is what processes start to kick in to, to your point. And it's things like other parts of the FAR. FAR part 15 is the big one that comes to mind. The acquisition time zones, the episode that you and I did, I don't know, like a couple of years ago. It's our, our, our concept of how you walk through 
through this process, those zones, the requirement zone, the market research zone, the solicitation zone or RFP zone, and then the selection zone become much more obvious when you get to the medium. So you need to understand there is a acquisition process behind this. The fact that you're now going to have probably have a proposal to write, you're going to have evaluation criteria that you can shape, that you can influence during the market research zone. You're going to have, is this a small business set aside or not? Because now that's a decision. It's a determination based on who's out there, right? And it goes back to your point about the relationship. If you have a relationship with this agency and they think, okay, yes, you can do this. Now I'll set it aside to compete among small businesses. So the relationship still matters. But if you don't know how that decision is made and you don't know what to send them to help them make the decision to set it aside for small business, the process may end up being that they make it full and open. And all of a sudden you're competing with every large business under the sun and the calculus just changed for you overnight. So the processes of understanding what clauses now kick in, what rules are now required. Is this going to be a commercial item? And if it's not, because I've been selling a commercial item that's, that's worth $50,000, for the, under the small contracts. Now it's considered not to be a commercial item because I'm selling it specifically to one government Department of Defense uh, organization. Does that change the rules? Yes, it does because the clauses are now different. Your requirement to share information just changed. What does that mean to you? So a lot of these processes about the information you're expected to share, the things you're expected to know, and I'm going to be kind of I don't know, sarcastic here, but it, it, it's true. My awareness of how much it costs to write a proposal as a contracting officer or my lack of awareness was shocking looking back. I would ask mm -hmm. people for proposals and say, hey, can you send me a proposal on that? Thinking that it, it's something they could crank out in an afternoon. Now here I am, you know, 10 years on the industry side. Wow. <laughs> That's a big ask, especially if it's like a $2 million proposal, put alone the, the, the pricing piece of it. But I have to build out the team. I have to know that this is actually going to get done because as soon as I hand it to the contracting officer, it's carved in stone. And that mindset is terrifying. So being aware of when you get to that dollar level and now you've competed a contract, going back to your process question, the process that we went through to compete it, we can't change our mind at the end and say, oh, well, you said you could do this, but you can't really. So we're just, we're just going to shave that part off the contract. They may terminate you. Whereas if it's a $50,000 action, the amount of effort it takes to terminate you, it's like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll, we won't award that to you next time. The consequences go up as the value goes up. And so all of these processes can kick in, but I would say the, to, to break it down to the biggest ones is understanding all the zones, all the, the time zones you're going to go through, understanding that you can shape the evaluation criteria. What does that mean to you from a competitive perspective? And then you got to know how to write a proposal because this ain't, this ain't just a quote. When you're doing a $5 million action, it's probably not a quote. <laughs> it's going right, to be right. a 20, 50, could, you know, depending on what it is. It could be an enormous proposal, but it's going to feel enormous to you if you've never done one before. Right. And I think it's quite intimidating to write that first yeah. proposal. You know, that's one of the reasons we always recommend when you're first starting out, you should be teaming. You should be working with larger companies, watching how they go through proposals and their process and learning from all that stuff and just getting sharp on it. Because you're talking primarily about the government's process in this 250000 to 15 million phase here. There's also your internal business processes that have to mm -hmm. shift and grow as well. Not only with how do we write a proposal, but do we have a team? Do we outsource this? You know, what does that look like? But then the how do we react to the government's processes? I had a client that just recently went through their first down select, and I, I think it was around a $12 million contract. Doesn't necessarily always happen around that, but they did. And they were like, what does this mean? 
they came back and said, hey, you've been chosen in the final round of three, and we'd like you to come back with your best and final offer. And they were like, so are they telling me we've got to knock 50% off the price? There was all these questions that came up because they had never gone through that process before of the government, and now they needed a process on their end for how they manage that stuff. Another one that I talk about a lot is their pricing. You mentioned that briefly there, where people don't understand their pricing at the small level you can throw out a price. Maybe the government asks you to justify it. Maybe not. But when you get into the medium and the large level, they want you to justify your price. Why did you come up with these rates? Where did that come from? Not just because, well, we sat down with a spreadsheet and I was told we need a multiplier of 1.7. So I did that and that's where I got my number. You need more info than that. And so there's not just the government process. There is the internal reactions to their process that you need to figure out and be prepared for because in reality, you don't have weeks to learn this stuff when you're in the heat of battle and they're like, hey, you've got, you know, 10 days to respond or whatever it is. You can't even find help sometimes in that amount of time. In the first one, relationship was huge. Process was, you know, somewhat of a factor. We get into the medium stage. Relationship is still a factor, but learning all the processes even more. Why does it transition in your mind when you get to the large phase and now relationship becomes way more important? important again. The biggest reason is now you have the opportunity, the expectation to be able to shape the opportunity more. For example, let's say you're the incumbent. This is a $25 million contract. I'm picking one off of memory. When I, mm-hmm. when I awarded a contract for for training services, for $25 million contract, they had to compete. That actually was a was a down select where we awarded three contracts. And then the one with it, who delivered the best got the $25 million contract. That follow-on process to compete it five years later, they influenced that greatly. They're in a position to be, as the incumbent, to be able to say, hey, this is what we're This is what didn't, this is the evaluation criteria that seems to work and the government can decide to to go with that or not. But your ability to influence is driven by relationship. If they don't know, I'll use myself as an example. When I managed a a $50 million contract at SOCOM, if we didn't know who you were when you you submitted a proposal, that's a huge red flag. We have to have some kind of relationship with you or we're not going to trust you can actually do it. Because the expectation at 50 or $100 million, you can write a proposal. At that dollar level, you're probably hiring a professional to nail the proposal. We got to be able to know beyond the proposal things like past performance. We got to be able to believe your past performance and be able to say, okay, based on you having worked with us before or you having worked with a different agency, I can look at this and say, okay, this is credible past performance. This isn't you saying, yeah, we've done this well at some point in the past. Trust us. At $50,000, I might believe that. But at, at 50 million, I can't believe that. I have to justify that. You know, my name's going on the contract. I got to make sure that I'm not going to end up with egg on my face. This idea of as the contract gets big enough, the relationship helps you to influence what the contract will look like. And here's the weird part. As a contracting officer, I didn't see this. I didn't realize, like I didn't have this, so many things that I've developed since leaving. <laughs> I didn't see them clearly when I was a contracting officer. This is a great example of that. I didn't realize how much the relationship started to swing back to be more important once you get above a certain dollar threshold. And in this case, we figured out that 15 million seems like that spot. But you get to a big enough contract where I, somebody in this office, where you when you submit your proposal, somebody here has to know who you are. Somebody has to be able to say, okay, this proposal is, is not fiction. Other than 
been calling the you know, defense contract management agency and asking for a, a performance review, I got to be able to say, can they actually do this? Do we know anybody there? Did they obviously know us? Does the tone of their proposal match our language? That was a big one for me. When you're writing to a government agency and you're writing a 50 or $100 million proposal, the expectation is that your tone, your words, your language, your examples matches exactly what they're looking for. You could be close enough at 50 grand or even at 5 million because it's, it's a smaller contract. But at that dollar level, we're expecting you have a relationship with us. We're expecting that you know who we are. Otherwise, we're taking a huge risk of giving you a contract that big. With that, one of the things I'll say that I've witnessed happen is where you're in the Q&A period for an RFP. And if you don't know the agency, you either get very limited or almost no answers back during the Q&A period. You don't really influence that active RFP. Where I've seen on the other side, where whether it's an incumbent or somebody who has a, a deep relationship, they ask questions or ask the government to make a change to something that's already an RFP. You know, you're in the, again, you're in the Q&A period and the government makes the change. We had a client a few months ago, they were the incumbent and there were three things in the new RFP that if the government went through with would exclude them from competing. Oh, you're actually <laughs> going to be excluded from competing yeah. on this contract. The first one was a past, they wanted three past performance examples and this was their first government contract. And they're like, <laughs> you know, this is our first government contract and now you're going to exclude us from recompeting. And they were like, oh, you know, it's just one of those things we put in, you know, every RFP, right? Yep. So yep. they went back and they changed it. And there was two other ones. I don't remember what they were off the top of my head, but had the government not done that, they would have not even been able to compete. And here was the first thing I said to them. I said, look, if they did this on purpose, they don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> like They clearly didn't like the job you did and we've got problems. So we need to identify. I was like, how happy are they with you? You know, we had to have that conversation. They're like, oh, they seem to love us. Okay. Well then I think this was an accident. And sure enough, it was. But I've seen on the flip side, others where they did try to influence and they were like, yeah, they're not too happy with us. So they won't let us change that stuff. But you know, if you have a relationship, I've seen the Q&A period just be a miracle worker for some people to go ahead and compete for that incumbent contract and win it. That's one of the places that I've seen where the relationship is just so important here. Crafting those questions is one of the things that, that we, we find ourselves doing a lot. If you want to get that answer of, do they like us or not? And then if I word this in a certain way, is it going to tip off what we're doing? And can I ask this question in a certain way? To back up one of your points is how quickly they respond to your question. As a contracting officer, I usually have to answer every question. Like there's certain certain nuances where I can say, well, we've already answered that. But most of the time I have to answer it. How quickly I respond and post the answer to the question, particularly if it's a live RFP, that's an indicator of how much I care that you get the answer. Unless I want to be a real jerk about it, I could actually wait until like two days before the RFP is due or the proposal's due, in which case you don't have time to turn the bus, right? And so having the, the ability to influence it even after the RFP drops, but more importantly, during that market research zone before the RFP drops, like I think you guys call that the, the pre the pre-acquisition zone, right? That idea of the market research zone is the best place to be having these kind of conversations and to leverage that relationship or to your point, to be able to realize, wow, we don't have the relationship we thought we did because if that RFP comes out with those three things that box you out after you told them, please don't do this. Well, you just save yourself some time writing a proposal because you're not going to win that. Yep. You're not going to win. There's nothing you can do about that. So it's very interesting. And I, I think there's just too many people that discount that market research phase of all this. And so if I could stress anything about this at any of these stages is making sure you are building that relationship so you can talk intelligently 
intelligently pre-RFP about a lot of this stuff and try to get as much of it, we call it ghosted, uh, in your favor as much as possible. So that's always really, really important. We've kind of talked about a lot of different areas of this. I know you and I, when we get together, could talk for hours about all this stuff. As we wrap up here, are there maybe two or three points that you want to leave everybody with? The biggest one is understand where where you thrive. For us, Mm. for Skyway, like our, our customers tend to thrive in the medium to large. That's our sweet spot because that's the part where you tend to need a contracting officer. You don't need a contracting officer to buy something with a government purchase card. You oftentimes don't need a contracting officer to influence a simplified mm. acquisition procedure. As a contracting officer, if you're telling me that's the best deal and it's a $200,000 action and I can award it as a commercial item, I'm not going to debate it with you. It's like, okay, this makes sense. You're, you're giving me the justification. I'm going to move. At a $5 million action, I have to have more meat and that meat will often come from industry. And so that's where most of our customers live is that $250,000 up to about $100 million. And so understanding where you play as a contractor is going to help you things like, where do I have to learn? Do I have to learn FAR Part 15? Or can I focus on, like, if you only sell through um, IDIQ contracts, like large IDIQs, learn 16.5. A lot of FAR Part 15, you only care about that when you win the first one, the the first large UAC. But once you've got it, now you're living in 16.5. Understanding those little nuances of where you live is a really critical part. Second thing I'll say is targeting, is figuring out the, the agencies that you sell to or that you want to sell to, where do they live? I mentioned that about 10 minutes ago, this idea of targeting. If the agency that you buy from mostly uses simplified acquisition procedures, you're coming to them with these giant proposals, expecting you're going to be able to to win work that way. That's not how they they compete. What they want to know is what can I buy from you now? Likewise, like for example, a lot of of my jobs that I had when I I was a contracting officer, like with the Air Force, most of the contracts that I awarded were over 15 million. They were definitely over 250,000, but a lot of them over 15 million. So if your expectation is that you can just move into that space without understanding the differences between that space and the under 250,000, you're, you're going to have frustrations. The last thing I'll say is these numbers are as of today. <laughs> so <laughs> that 250,000, that's the Thinfoot acquisition threshold today. So this is a 2022 version that you and I are, are making right now. This is not an exact science. For example, under FAR 13.5, you can award Thinfoot acquisition procedures up to $7.5 million. Again, there's a rabbit trail that can go down. So it's very easy to get distracted by all the different nuances. But generally speaking, if you start to learn, okay, most of our customers are in the medium to large. Therefore, here's how I should operate. These are the things I'm going to run into. To to your point, Mike, you need to have things like, what's your proposal library look like? What's your past performance library look like? You can't wait till the RFP drops to go. You can wait. You shouldn't wait. Most people do. (laughs) People do. Yeah, yeah, we're humans. We tend to procrastinate, right? But those kind of things that you'll run out of time if you don't know what's coming before it comes during those zones. Really good points. And I like the first one might be my favorite there because I I think most people don't know where they thrive. That is, they believe they can thrive anywhere and everywhere. And (laughs) and having that at a minimum as just a frame of reference to know where you should and shouldn't play, I think is, can often be a a game changer for folks. You know, that's the thing where that can allow you to really be successful. If you don't understand something and you're trying to play in the wrong lane, you are going to struggle. There's no doubt about you're going to struggle. It's just a matter of how much and how often how painful it's going to be. And to your point earlier about how expensive proposals are, how many of those you're going to do before you say, hey, no more of this. So I think that's really, really important knowing where you thrive. All the other points are really great. People can grasp that one. I think that'll change a lot of the actions they take. And then it spills over into the other two. So really great stuff as always. I just want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for you know being another podcaster in this space and, and kind of promoting everything we all do in government contracts 
connecting. I just really appreciate it, Kevin. So thank, thanks again today for coming on. No problem, Mike. It's always great to see you and we'll do this again. These are so fun. Absolutely. I'll see you. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers. Thank you.